This is the conversation with Nels Jorgensen. He's a retired New York City firefighter who was at Ground Zero on 9/11. He was also the host of the 20 for 20 podcast, a series that highlighted 20 inspiring stories from the heroes of 9/11. In this conversation, we relive September 11, 2001, all over again. How the day unfolded, what he was doing at the time, what he was feeling. We discuss God and keeping faith. during and after the events of that day we discussed leukemia which was the result of all the toxic fumes he inhaled at ground zero we also discussed surviving chemotherapy survivors guilt and the feeling on 912 this is no time if you like what you see then do hit subscribe on youtube follow on spotify or rate five stars on apple podcast if you'd like to see this project continue then do consider making a donation on patreon or on anchor For the forms of love and support, you can follow this channel on Instagram or Twitter. You can share these episodes on social media platforms of your choice, or you can follow me personally. And now, it's no time. At eight forty-six a.m. on nine eleven, you were driving your oil truck on Staten Island when you heard about the first strike on the radio, and your immediate reaction was, "It's a mistake. It had to be an accident." You were of course driving your oil truck because that was one of your multiple jobs. Most firefighters had multiple jobs in New York City because firefighting barely paid above minimum wage. When you heard about the first strike, you looked towards the skyline, you saw thick dark smoke, and your reaction was, "It's a mistake because the rookie pilot who veered off course probably taken in by the heavy winds around Manhattan. Often the case because of the wind tunnel effect that's created by these high rises in Manhattan." My first question for you is. because of your initial reaction was it ever conceivable for you personally that humans are capable of death and destruction on such a massive scale before 911 was it ever conceivable that humans are capable of evil of such a massive scale before that day you know unfortunately uh in humanity there's many many good people but As time moves on, I almost get the sense that it's a 50-50 split between evil and good, racing towards capturing people's souls, you know, for their team. You know, evil wants more people, good wants more people. Um, I was at the first bombing in 1993 with a uh, a really wonderful human being, uh Henry Miller, worked in Ladder Company 105, and um he was my senior man, which uh in the fire department, they they have seniority you know from how many years you've served and the senior men take it upon themselves to look after the new guys um keep them safe make sure they don't make a mistake and get hurt and uh hank as we called him was my senior man that day and um we were there kind of after the fact as a uh, extra company you know things had sort of slowed down a little bit by the time we were there and he looked around and he said um kid they they didn't do this right they blew it up in the middle and if they did it in a column in the corner they would have taken the building down and dropped it to canal street he said but make no mistake about it they'll be back and they'll do it right so that was evil at work that day in 1993 and uh hank was 100% right because he was on duty the morning of 911 and he was now the senior man for my lieutenant at the time beautiful human being Dennis Oberg and uh Dennis's son Dennis was under the care of Hank and uh they were killed together 
with the rest of Ladder Company 105, which was my first command. And that whole truck company, as we call them, was uh, was killed that morning. And I try to keep politics out of it. Uh, you know, it's it's you don't want to offend, you know, uh, people paint everybody with a broad brush. But it was an act of hatred. The folks who committed the bombings uh, and the plane crashes the morning, well, say the morning of 1993, and then also again in 2001, it was strictly done because of hatred, um, a lack of freedom. Uh, well, I'm going to say we have extensive freedoms here, and I think, I think the perpetrators hated that fact. Um, I have a very deep religious faith, but I would never hurt anyone to purport it, to perpetuate it, to, you know, to convince someone to become of my faith. And the same holds true for politics now, I guess, right? There's a lot of people that will commit evil, evil acts based just upon their politics. They hate the other side so much. And you would think as time moves on in in this world and all the advancements in technology and education and enlightenment, we're kind of going backwards. Uh, I, to me, I feel like there's more resentment and division and hatred than ever before. And, you know, um, I've said it in the past and I'll say it again, one of the most beautiful days of my life was September 12th of 2001 because when we came back, uh, we had left, you know, after almost 24 hours to just clean up and get oxygen. And, and, you know, we were, we were a mess from digging. And I remember coming back in on the morning of the 12th and the West side highway, which is just down the road from here, but a little further South where we were was lined with thousands of people with flags, with posters, with just signs of encouragement. And one of the most beautiful things about it was, you know, New York City, as you know, um, is the land of opportunity. It's a melting pot. It's, it's a whole mixed soup of immigrants who come here for opportunities. And there was people lined up down there from every, my gosh, I mean, like almost every country in the world, every religion, um, and they were unified. And as responders, even though we were, you know, our souls and hearts were broken because we knew we were now searching for people we loved. It was such a refreshing symbol to see those people showing so much love and unity. And uh, I really wish I could bring back that 912 syndrome, you know. Uh, I don't know how we could. I hope it's not by way of another tragedy, but we really need to uh, regroup and recollect and try just to, you know, if we have differences, so be it. We're all different people but at least have a dialogue, at least try to understand that person who's different instead of attacking each other based on beliefs. I want to expand on one element you mentioned when you were talking about uh, wanting to help people. And I want to tie this in with the events of the day as well. At 9 a.m. when you heard about the second strike on the South Tower, you immediately got inside your yellow Volkswagen Beetle uh, car, your friend Bobby Adams used to call it clown wagon. <laughs> That's right, and my friend, <laughs> as we call him, my friend Bobby Adams Gomez. And Gomez, just the first time I pulled up with that Volkswagen, <laughs> he came running out of the firehouse with about 
eight guys and they all jumped in the back and I go, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> he says, this is the clown wagon, right? And I, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so you got in that car and you started speeding towards ground zero because the moment the second strike happened, you knew immediately we under attack. Your wife called you when you were crossing the Verzano Bridge and she said, don't go in there. Do what your dad would want you to do. Go to the firehouse first, get your gear, wait for orders. You touched upon this earlier as well about wanting to help people. Your wife knew immediately the moment it happened that you will be heading there. You said in the past and you said now as well that I find myself throwing myself into situations to protect other people. I just can't walk away from it. Do you think your desire to help people to head towards danger and protect lives. Not everyone's built this way. People actually run away from danger the moment it happens. Do you think this stems completely from being bullied in school or do you think it goes much deeper than that as well? You know, I think, Shalash, it, it, it's my upbringing. Um, my father, you know, my father was a firefighter in New York City for almost 35 years and um, he had cancer and would go to work on chemotherapy. Um, just an incredible human being. He's, I still have him. Thank God he's going to be 84 years old. And he's, you know, he's my, uh, my rock. I mean, I have, I have him tattooed on my arm and it's, it's, you know, it says my example, my hero, my father, and it's FDNY with his badge because I just adore the man. He, you know, when I was a child, he was Spider-Man. <laughs> Batman and Superman wrapped into one. You know, my dad was a New York City fireman. He'd come home smelling like smoke. And um, and my beautiful Irish immigrant mother, who I still have, you know, wonderful, wonderful mom. Uh, and they instilled in us. My, my parents both, both grew up very poor. Um, my father's father was from Denmark, and he was one of those success stories that came here with, you know, 15, 20 bucks in his pocket. And no complaining, just went and did it. And, you know, at the end of his life, he, he ended up being, you know, pretty good for a guy who came here broke and, and you know, killed himself, worked so hard. And, uh, you know, my father's mother was an orphan. Her parents were from Ireland and they died when she was a child. And so I come from really, really humble, humble beginnings. And my, my parents taught us, my, my brother and my sister and I, to always be humble, always be gracious, always be kind. I think one of the attributes that's missing from society now is a sense of being grateful. We've become an ungrateful society. And I'm not saying that people have to run around all day smiling and hugging and thanking everyone, but wow, I mean, some of the things that we used to take so for granted have, have gone by the wayside. So I grew up with an obligation to be a good person. And I idolized my dad. I, I wanted to be him from four or five years old on because I, I knew then what he did was helping people and making a difference. And, you know, my dad is such a humble guy. And I found out years later, like he was this guy who could just knock a door down in like, you know, three seconds. And, you know, like I ran into a fireman at work with him way back. And I'm like, really? I said, my dad never talks about that. He goes, oh, my God. He goes, your father, you know. He was Georgie. They call me Georgie. He says, Georgie, knock any door down. Like, you know, and I'm going, really? My dad? Because he just, he's so unassuming. I'm a little more bombastic and, uh, <laughs> you know, animated. Just, just, you know, I think it's a little bit more my Irish mother in me. But, but anyway, yeah, that morning I just felt like this, this, okay, I have to get there. Um, 
things are going bad really fast. I knew right away when the second plane hit that, that this is, this is it. This is the day we've been training for. You know, we knew, I mean, somewhere in the nineties, they had a training manual with world trade center on it and it, it had a, a target and it said, not a matter of if, but a matter of when. And, uh, I said, well, this is it. This is, this is when. So our, our procedures in the job and FDMY and NYPD and, uh, New York city EMS is that you, uh, when they grant what they call a recall, that's you're obligated as an off duty member to come to your command, <clears throat> secure your gear and await further orders because they don't want you racing in individually because now it's an accountability issue. They don't know where you are. You know, if, if you run in and they're like, well, where, where's the You know, I don't know. Did he come? Was he yeah. here? Well, he usually works in engine three. Right. But yeah, but I don't know. So they want to be able to know where you are and when you got there. So as I was racing across the Verrazano and I, you know, got off the phone, with my wife, I said, all right, I better, I remember my father always saying, if there's ever a recall, you go where you're supposed to go. And he was in my ear and I veered off the highway. And, uh, at the time worked in ladder 114, uh, tally ho, my, uh, my beloved, uh, truck company. And I was the first one in the door. And, uh, the guys, we were at the time, a single ladder company. They're now, uh, with quartered with engine company 201, which happened to be, uh, my childhood best friend, John's command. And John was killed that morning. So when I got into the firehouse, I, I, uh, the alarm dispatch system was still beeping and, um, the truck was gone. So I called into command to the 40th battalion and, uh, said, you know, what's my orders? What are we doing? And they said, all right, when you get 12 of you, sign into the journal, which is the daily events. It's 24 seven, everything's logged in what happens and get a commandeer city bus and get down to the trade center. Um, and you'll be deployed from there. So there was, uh, reports that there would be a possible secondary device in the battery tunnel. Uh, we were diverted. So we, the guys came in, uh, we got 12 of us. And just as we were about to leave for the bus on the television, and on a department radio, it was all chaos. And we could see that the tower had collapsed. Can we pause there? Yeah. Because in the past, you mentioned this exact moment at 9.59 when the South Tower collapsed. You watched it on the television. Yes. And you immediately fell to your knees and started praying. I did. And all the guys started asking you, what are you doing? Right. I want to pause here because you mentioned this initially as well. You're a man of religious faith. You have used prayers and faith in the past to help you through tough events. You've shared a heartwarming story in the past as well about working in the firehouse, getting a call, you get to the house and there's an elderly woman going through a cardiac arrest and by her side was a husband of over yeah. 60 years. Yeah. And typically you ask people to move away so you can try and save the woman. But in that situation, you show some empathy and you ask the man, you, you are, let him remain there. You also held his hand. Yes. And in that moment, you asked him whether you can say a prayer together. Yes. And just the act of praying together for her life helped him find some form of closure in that tough moment. And he came back to you a week later as well to tell you that. Yeah. You have used faith, prayers, belief in God to help you through tough events. Yes. Can you talk me through your relationship with faith in God after 9-11? And I say that because on that day, you witness injustice on such a massive scale. So many innocent people lost lives, did not deserve to lose lives. So many families were ripped apart. Many kids lost their parents. Many victims called their partners one last time to say, I love you, which is a heartbreaking message to even listen to. 
yeah having seen and witnessed all the injustices that you saw that day was it tough for you to still believe in god and still keep faith no because i believe in god he's an all loving all forgiving all understanding god he gives us life he gave us the creation of life but what he gave us is free will so he cannot steer our car of life so to speak every single day it's up to us how to drive it do we drive it safely and respectfully change lanes signal get back in the you know and that's what people said to me i've i've had people say this to me you're an idiot for still believing you know when they went through their times of pain they said you know if there was a god he would not allow this to happen or if there was a god he wouldn't allow children to get sick and suffer i think it comes to free will the people who did this that day on 9/11 who did the hijackings and the bombings and flying the planes into the buildings they chose to do that you know some people feel like well god should have you know spiritually cosmically intervened and stopped those planes and veered them off it doesn't work that way um you know god's a mystery i've never i've never seen him firsthand obviously no one has and folks who come near dying and actually die say they have but i feel that he is there just saying look i gave you this gift of life utilize it well do some good and a lot of people just choose not to and i i do think we're answerable for our lives someday you know i haven't been perfect i'm not going to kid you and say that i'm far from perfect but i try on a daily basis to be a good human being to make up for the mistakes i've made and try to do just good things for people and i feel like that's just become now we're in a godless society that's being run by by maniacs by by just people that are so blinded by their ideology and they're just there's such an attack on organized religion and i understand that some organized religion aspects of organized religion are maybe extreme for some folks um but religion to me is you know we really don't use maps like we used to we used to actually take out a map and you know draw where we were going and now the phone does it for us but to me religion is like a road map if if you try to stay according to the map you'll you'll get to your destination uh okay but if you start veering off and just going in your own direction just cuz you feel like it and you don't want to answer to anybody you're going to get lost and i feel like in my times of life where i was lost having a hard time was when i was the furthest away from god but when i drew my faith back closer and i tried to be better every day just to do little things i felt so much better you know during the times when we were finding our friends and finding these human beings that were just so physically violated i mean we didn't really find whole bodies we just found parts and remains and what was a human and every time i i'd stop and um i didn't know what faith they were i couldn't even tell what color they were half the time because it was just human remains but i put my hand down and i closed my eyes and i look up see dear god 
please just find them worthy of your kingdom. Whatever it is they may have done in this life, please find it in your heart to forgive them. And I mean that. I, I, you know, it was like that you mentioned that older lady who passed with her husband. We both knew that she was going to die. To me, she was a stranger. And that gentleman, I'd never met them in my life. But that was his wife. And that was some children's mother and grandmother. And I just wanted him to know that I, as a human being, cared enough to try to at least assuage his pain, make it a little less. And in that moment of, of tragedy for him, I think I did because he did. He held her hand and he held mine and he prayed over her. And, and it was almost like you could see a sense of relief come to him because he knew she was sick. And I take that really seriously. You know, my Irish mother wanted me to be a priest. And, and you know, I actually considered it. I really did. But I wanted to have a family. And I considered the fire department my priesthood. I took it that serious, you know. Um, and, you know, I'm a different human being. Uh, I'm outspoken. I'm gregarious. I, you know, I'm loud or, like, you know, I just love good. I love good people. I really don't like bad people. I despise them, actually. But I still pray for them. I don't hate them. I don't hate anyone. Can you get yourself to pray for the hijackers as well? Yeah, I do pray for them. I still resent them. Um, you know, if I could have five minutes with them, I'd say, guys, what, what caused you to hate so much that you would do that to a human being? You know, if we believe in a higher power, whatever they may be, I always thought that the whole meaning of that is if it's a God or whatever we term him, doesn't he want us to be good? Doesn't he want us to be in his image? You know, I, I don't understand that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly Irish and I'm also Danish, right? So my family in Ireland descends from IRA country, right? Where they, where they were focused down in the south of Ireland. And I know they were being somewhat terrorized or however you want to say it by British, you know, rule and occupation. But I can understand combat soldier to soldier and army to army. I get that, right? I don't agree with it. Most of the time it's over nonsense. But when you start inflicting damage and pain on innocence, on children, on women, and people have nothing to do with whatever the hell it is you're fighting for, like, I got a problem with that. I was a soldier. I was in the United States Army. And I would have no problem defending my country for what is right and what is just. There's no way that I can engage in stuff that would just violate human beings for some crazy reason, be it religion or politics, or I don't like the color of that guy's skin or his hair. or his, Like, what the hell? That, God doesn't want that. God wants us to just live and let live. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. If you need a hand, I'll help you. Absolutely. You know, everything is so race-based now and so it's everything is divided on gender and race, religion and whatever. And I've been called a racist many times because I'm a nationalist. I'm very proud of America and, and I have no problem with people coming here. I mean, you've come here yourself. I think it's great because guess what? I'm first generation American. 
So that would make me a damn hypocrite if I couldn't embrace other people coming. But I've put my life on the line for people of other races. I, I chose to work in inner city neighborhoods most of my career because it tends to be more busy. There's more activity. There's more fires. There's more medical calls, car accidents. I've breathed life back into black babies. And I never once would I stop and say, whoa, whoa, what, what color are you? Or what race or what religion or what? No. The guys, the guys and the girls who ran into the World Trade Center that morning, do you think any one of them stopped and went, oh, time out. Oh, who's up in the building? Is it, is it Irish people, German people, people from Dubai, people from Egypt? No, it didn't matter. There was human beings in that building. Can I ask you, so we were talking about God and religion as well. As a follow-up to that, I also want to talk to you about miracles. Stanley Premnath was an employee of Fuji Bank on the 81st floor of the South Tower, and he watched the plane approach him. And as it got closer, he could hear the engine revving and he shouted, Lord, I can't do this. You take over. And he dove under his desk. His entire floor was destroyed. The only desk that remained standing was his desk. And his desk was also the only desk with the Bible on it. And the story did not stop there. Years after 9-11, he lost his memory. He suffered from some form of PTSD. Yeah. Until one day, randomly, he opened the Bible, landed on the verse 9-1-1, which read that, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty and immediately his memory came back. There's another story of Al Braqa, who was a man on the 104th yes. floor of North Tower who led 50 people into prayer and many victims called their families and their last call they said that Al Braqa was there in that moment to give them some peace, some solace by leading them into prayer. After the tower collapsed, his body was found nearly intact. You mentioned most of the victims were completely pulverized. To date, we have still not identified many of the victims. So this was a near miracle that you were able to find his body, wedding ring intact as well, nearly identifiable. We spoke about God. We spoke about the gift of life. What do you think is happening here? Because clearly this cannot be explained by luck or coincidence or science. Clearly there's some unforeseen forces causing this, this driving all these miracles. What do you think is happening here? My, my personal interpretation is... Some people would say, well, then why didn't God intervene for everyone that day? And uh, I don't know. I don't know why he didn't. But I think he tries to send us messages to reinforce his presence, to galvanize the faith of those who do believe. And, you know, we, we interviewed uh, Al Brock's son, David, um, during the 20 for 20 podcast. And what a beautiful family. What he instilled such faith in his family and his children and now his grandchildren. And I don't scrutinize anyone who doesn't have faith, but I pray for them that they'll obtain it. When I was 10 years old, my father was dying. He was sent home with end-stage non-Hanskins lymphoma. They said, there's really not much more we can do, but we have this experimental drug that we'd like to try on you if you're willing. You'll be the test pilot. And if it works, we're not sure what'll happen. And my father in his, you know, tough Brooklyn accent, he's like, hey, doc, I'm not a pilot, I'm a fireman. And she's like, no, 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 you're, you're going to be like a guy trying it out. He says, okay, whatever it takes. And my dad would come home from his chemo treatment. He would leave work at noon, take a subway, a ferry, and a train to Staten Island to the chemo center. And my mom would be waiting for him. And he'd come home, and within hours, he'd be violently ill. He'd be vomiting so horribly. 
And I would, I couldn't really give him food and he can only have very minimal water because we didn't want him to aspirate. And I would just wipe the vomit from his face with a sponge and with a face cloth. And I would hold his hand and he wouldn't complain. He didn't say much. He was in pain and he was sick, but and I would hold his hand and I would kneel down by his bed and I would pray. And I say, dear God, I just lost my grandpa Nels. I was named after him. I didn't really like my name as a kid because it was so different and I got made fun of it. And now I'm so proud of it because it's from a good man, a good, decent soul. And I pray and I say, God, I lost my grandpa. I can't lose my dad. Please, please, please just make him get through this. Please don't let him suffer and let him live. And I do this every two weeks for three or four years, watching him suffer. Never complained. A couple of days after the treatment, the treatment would be on a Thursday. By Saturday, he'd start getting up a little bit in a robe. And then by Sunday, he'd sit down and he'd ask my mom to make him a little black coffee, a couple of eggs, and maybe a little toast. And Monday morning, four o'clock in the morning, he was back on that train to the ferry, to the subway, to be at the office for quarter to seven in the morning. And can I say to you convincingly that that was a miracle that my father was spared because I prayed so hard to God? I can't. Because, you know, Shalaz, I don't know. I don't know if God heard it and God heard me praying from so many of my friends that I pray for now because I have so many of my friends who are sick. And I prayed so hard for Jeff. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and he didn't make it. But I'm not angry. And now my prayer is, God, let him be at peace and comfort, which he deserves. He's a good man. And I know he is. I just, I just know. So those people that day, I think, I think God sent us some messages to remind us, yes, this was evil. Yes, there's suffering and there's much pain. But I'm still here. Please turn to me and not the other side. And, you know, our beautiful Catholic chaplain, Father Michael Judge, who died praying over our guys. I actually met him firsthand uh, in, in, a, in a tough circumstance. I, I was in a bad fire truck collision back in 1993, couldn't move. Um, he responded to the hospital with my mom and my late Irish mother-in-law, who was a lovely woman, my father-in-law, my brother-in-law, my mom and dad, my wife. And he was praying over me as I went into the CAT scan tube. And I said, Father, I missed church today. It was Sunday. And we were at, I did a 24-hour shift Sunday morning to Monday morning. I said, but maybe they can wheel me down to the, to the chapel after this. And he held my hand and he laughed. He said, Nels, listen, if you try to tell God tonight what you're doing tomorrow, he's going to laugh at you. Don't worry about missing church today. Let's just pray to him now. And he put his hands on my head. And he held me, and he said a prayer, came out of the CAT scan tube. A few hours later, they're like, look, you have some swelling in your spinal column, but we can't really see any discernible injuries. Kept me for four days. I was back on a fire truck in a few weeks. It was just as, you know, one doctor said it was like a stinger from a football helmet. You just got hit hard. And a few years later, I was in a collapse, and I'm back in a CAT scan tube. And the doctor's like, holy shoot. He goes, you got an old fracture here up in C7, but he goes, it's all filled in with arthritis and you know scar tissue and whatever. He goes, you, you get a bad injury in the last 
six, 10 years? I go, yeah, I did actually. He says, you shouldn't be walking around. You shouldn't be playing sports and being on a fire department. He goes, what, what happened? Told him a quick story. I told him about Father Judge laying his hands on me. And this particular doctor was one of the fire department. He was actually a combat surgeon in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he happened to be an Irish Catholic guy. And I said, I think it has something to do with Father Judge. And he smiled. He goes, so do I. He goes, take the gift and have a great career. So again, was that a miracle? Was that? I don't know. But I don't believe in coincidences anymore. I, I really believe that God puts good people into each other's paths. I just drove down to Florida through the night to, to speak to a class of, of fourth and fifth graders uh, for a friend's wife. And it turned out it was 125 kids. And I was just like, ooh, this is, this is a big crowd, you know? <laughs> and they were wonderful. These kids were incredible. They weren't even born during 9-11. They weren't even close to being in existence. And the questions they had and the brutal honesty that they, they wanted to know. And I showed them the picture of my friend John Shart, mentioned 201, my, my lifelong friend who died. And I carry his picture in my hat, in my uniform hat, his mask card, because he watches over me. And I told them, I said, if you need a role model, if you need someone to act like, I says, because you know, when you're young, you're confused and you need, you're not sure who to be, right? But when I told these kids, I said, when you, when you need a role model, I said, just do a little kind act like my friend John would do and smile because he was always smiling, always, no matter what. It was like, what the hell are you smiling about? We'd play football together. You know, we had a team and we used to play these guys from the area, like from our neighborhood. They weren't the nicest of guys. And we'd be getting our butts kicked and he'd be smiling. I go, well, we're getting our ass kicked. What are you doing? He goes, no, we'll, we'll get him. We'll get him in the third or fourth quarter. They're going to get tired. And sure enough, we'd, we'd get him and we'd win. And he knew. I said, be like John. Smile, say hello, open a door, do something nice. If you see someone being bullied in a class, tell everybody to stop. They're being a fool. And one little boy in a crowd, he has special needs and he's blind. And his assistant came up and said, would, would PJ be able to speak to you? He wants to know about your friend, John. And I said, of course. And he asked me a couple questions. And he said, can I touch John's picture? Now he's blind put his hand in the hat on the picture, smiled. He knew. And I didn't ask him what it is exactly he was experiencing in that moment, because that was his moment. I was blown away spiritually. I mean, I felt this powerful presence of my friend, like, whoa, reminding me I'm doing what's right. Teaching the children about what happened, not with an agenda, not with a political bent, a straight down the middle fastball of, of what happened that day in my eyes, in my experience. And again, I never claimed to be some hero because I got there late. I got there after the buildings went down. My friends were gone already, right? So to me, I failed them. But the fact that these children want to know about my friends and that powerful, powerful message, I think, from my friend, from God, is that he's okay. Keep as you're going, as one of my old academy instructors used to say, Lieutenant Glennon, Keep as you're going, keep as you're going. I am going to try until people are tired of hearing me that don't want to hear me. I want to tell them <clears throat> about my brave friends who 
past and about my brave friends who are now fighting for their lives 21 years later with illnesses and about my other brave friends who have autoimmune diseases that they're suffering with and that's not even covered under the World Trade Center treatment. They're on their own. They're almost bankrupt, some of them, because they got sick from going down there. So what I'm trying to do is in the world of influencers, I kind of want to be an influencer. I don't want money. I don't, I don't need money. I'm, I'm, I have a pension and I have a job. But I just want to be out there trying to reinforce some positive. I take your point about God sending a message. There's another story you had shared on the 2420 podcast about Mariah Jacobson, who on the day of 9-11 felt, had this strong feeling that she had lost a family member. And turns out she was adopted. Her biological father was Tom Burnett, the yes. hero of Flight 93. Yes. There is clearly some divine force at play here. I want to take you back to something you mentioned in the beginning of the interview. On 26 Feb 1993, when you were at the site of the World Trade Center bombing, which is often forgotten now, your senior man, Henry Miller, said, they did it wrong, but in your career, Nels, you're going to be back here. Yeah. Eight years later, you were back there. At Ground Zero, this is how you described the visual. You said it. There were massive mountains of intertwined steel, dust, and concrete. Everything was pulverized. It was very hard to mentally compute the visual. There were fighter jets circling the entire wreckage. I looked at the destroyed Century 21 store with half of its neon sign still flickering, and I thought, this is a war zone. When the South Tower was struck, Howard Stern on air said, we all knew this was going to happen. You mentioned the training manuals had a picture of the World Trade Center with the bullseye with a target on it. Henry Miller predicted it in eight years back in 1993. It was not a matter of if, it was a matter of when. Without getting into the politics, maybe, but to what extent do you feel was 9-11 preventable? Do you think it was a consequence of ignorance, incompetence, or do you think that's being a bit too harsh because no one could have predicted attacks of this scale? You know, Salaz, that's, that's a powerful, tough question um, because... My faith in leadership is wavering, and it has been for a very long time. You know, I just read an article uh, recently about air travel, and, you know, there was threats for years. And, you know, when you look at Israel, LL Airlines, they for years have reinforced their planes, armed agents, whatever, Regardless, again, of politics, this and that, whatever, they were so proactive from so far back. Why weren't we? Even now, 21 years after 9-11, I just flew the other day. And on my flight, the procedure is in American air travel. When the pilot has to go to the bathroom, they open up this little door. The stewardess or flight attendant will stand with a cart near the bathroom, the pilot will come out of the door. She'll block for him so he can get in and out of the bathroom, okay? Now, I don't want to sound like a bombastic idiot, but I'm a, I'm a fairly large human being, okay? If I'm a hijacker, there is no freaking way that five-foot-tall, 99-pound flight attendant is stopping me with a cart from getting that pilot and either grabbing the door beforehand or whatever it may, may be, she's not stopping me from getting in that cockpit. If for approximately $35,000, 
the airlines can reinforce with a secondary door passway so no one can get through. The pilot needs to come out and relieve himself. He does, but nobody, I don't care if they're 350 pounds and jacked like a bodybuilder, they're not getting through. Why haven't we done that? And with all of the threats that were pre-93 and post-93 leading up to 2001, why weren't these measures taken? I heard a wise man once say, if you want an answer to any question in the world, follow the money trail, okay? And I hate to sound so jaded, but it comes down to dollars and cents. Why is it that we can find billions of dollars for this and relieve this country and aid to here and aid to... How about aid in our own damn country? And, and I'm not trying to say this to be exclusionary to folks coming here, but if we can't protect our own house, how is it that we can protect anyone else? And how is it that 21 years after 9-11, knowing that these aircraft were used as weapons. Those were weapons of mass destruction. They killed 2,977 people. And I know there's some idiot congresswoman out there right now trying to you know, list the lives of the hijackers as victims. They died, but they were not victims. So when you list victims of 9-11, you list innocents. Those guys chose to kill themselves. They're not a victim. But... The tactics they utilized 21 years ago could almost be easily done. And that frightens me. So the leadership of my country is not protecting us properly. I, I had an incident with a high, high level commander in the fire department two months after 9-11. I was filling in in the commands down the South Street Seaport, Engine 4, Ladder 15, wonderful group of guys. They got hit so hard on that day. They lost 14 of their members. So I took a voluntary detail to go down there and, and just help out. And this big, big chief comes up and says, all right, enough of this messing around and mourning and whatever. You guys need to get back out on building inspections and this and this and this. And, and you know, but we had, we had families of the 14 dead guys coming every day with their children and they wanted to talk about their dad or their husband, or they just wanted to sit in this firehouse and feel his presence. But this upper level commander wanted us so bad to go out and do inspections to generate revenue for the city coffers, right? Because if we give out a, a violation or summons, that's a lot of money for the mayor. Now, when we got to 9-11, the morning of 9-11, the guys like myself who came in after, who came in as the buildings had already gone down, we had no equipment. Nothing. They handed us 69 cent hardware store painter's masks that were saturated with sweat and dirt and dust and debris within five minutes. The biggest fire department in the world at the time, I think Tokyo may be bigger, had all these years to plan from 1993 on. And aside from the equipment that was from a day-to-day, -day, you know, used by the platoons on duty, but we did not have a cachet of backup, you know, we call them Scott air masks, the big air packs, Halligan bars to break in doors, all of these things where if I'm in charge, I go, hey, you know what? We need to have like 2,000 of these 
equipment sets for 2,000 guys responding in at a minimal, staged throughout the city just in case. And how about an extra 50 trucks? Biggest fire department in the world had to beg, borrow, and steal for fire trucks after they destroyed so many of ours. To me, that's incompetence. So this chief, I said to him, I said, excuse me, sir. Now, I was a firefighter at the time, the lowest rank. I got 12 years on a job. I drive the truck. I break down the door. That's my job. This guy's the big guy, right? Commands everything. I said, sir, please tell me 60 days after 9-11 that you guys have obtained the equipment that we need for the next disaster when it comes. And this was actually about a day before the air crash on November 12th. And I remember it so well because we were actually at the memorial service for my friend John. So I might have hit him with this question on like the 11th or the 10th. I said, please tell me two months later, after the worst tragedy in the world, that we have a cache of equipment waiting for us for the next one that's coming. And he, oh, well, well, oh, excuse me, what's your rank? Firefighter? I said, that's right, I'm a fireman. I'm a fireman with 12 years of experience. I said, but I know leadership. I was a sergeant in the army. Please tell me, sir, that we are equipped and ready for the next one. I said, you're so effing worried about us going back on inspection duties to make some money for the city. How about protecting your men? He, oh, 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 you're, out of, you're out of line, fireman. Got in his car and drove away. That scares me when a guy like that's in charge. And what scares me even more is on a national basis, we have some yo-yos running things. And I'm not saying, and this has nothing to do with political parties. I'm, I'm an independent because as my Irish grandmother always said, politicians are just like dirty diapers. They're full of shit and they stink. And it's true. They're all phonies. But please tell me, please tell me that you're looking out for my safety and my family's safety and hopefully, God willing, my future grandchildren's safety. And Shalaz, I don't know. I'm, I'm concerned because... I really don't know what we're doing right now to prevent the next big one. But just as Henry Miller said it, and I hope, I hope I don't live long enough to see it, there is another one coming. I'm not sure from who, from where, from what. I, I went to a, a federal training uh, in 2003, a weapons of mass destruction course. And I had very, very high level federal instructors and a couple guys from, from Russia. And they told us strictly off the record that the morning of 9-11, there was far more planes that actually struck that when they pulled everything back to the tarmac and was able to search the planes, there was multiple, multiple aircraft with box cutters and zip ties. Now, were those guys pitching their agenda? I don't know. I kind of believe them. Because when you think about it, they almost crippled America, striking New York City, Pentagon, and Shanksville, by the grace of God, there was no population except for those souls on the plane. But think about it. If they struck 12, 15, 18 cities in the United States of America simultaneously, where would done? Because we have no resources. Our resources were tapped to go down to these two places, Pentagon and, and the towers. But if they hit Houston, Chicago, LA, Dallas, Detroit, Washington, D.C., uh, you know, multiple cities. We were, what the hell would have happened? It would have been civil unrest because there'd have been no resources to do the normal police fire response work. The military would have been totally tapped out. The federal agencies would have been totally tapped out. 
What are we doing to prevent it? And again, this has nothing to do with politics right now, but this is just common sense. I'm reading articles that are saying that there's, there's people linked to bad people, terrorists, this and that, coming right over the border down in Mexico right now. Because we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to tell everyone they can't come in. I got no problem when people come in the right way. But I want to know who they are, right? It's, it's like, you know, you wouldn't hire me to do security for you or, or business for you or without knowing who I was. So we're letting people in. We have no idea who they are. They may have dubious intentions. That frightens me. That scares me a lot. I do hear you. And, and another telling fact was a year after 9-11, they even shut down many fire stations as well, firehouses. And the yeah. numbers even lower. I think it was seven or eight of them. Yep. Yeah. And while the population is going, so I do hear you. Yep. Another question with regards to something you mentioned earlier. When you were at Ground Zero, you said the visual was there was dust all around you. You could hear the hissing from the gas pipes and the water pipes. Beside you, there was a pocketbook a high heel shoe and a sneaker, but no one with them. And as you were getting through the debris, the guy next to you said, brother, hold on. What do you hear? And you said, nothing. And he said, me neither. They're all dead. No one's coming out of here. How important was it to hold on to the slightest slimmer of hope, a slightest amount of belief that you could still rescue someone hours after the towers collapsed, or maybe even days after? Or do you think it was more practical to just realize this was no longer a rescue mission? Oh, no, we... we we continued it as a rescue mission until we were certain that life at that point in time was not sustainable. You know, after seven or eight days, someone can't survive without water, without food, without good air. So that was the first night. And the next day, um, I was in a search area and there was a federal uh, agent. I'm not can't remember where he was from. Maybe I think it was the DEA, but he had a cadaver sniffing dog. And in our little group of guys that was digging, he said, okay, guys, the dog's hitting. There's somebody there. So in that twisted pile of dust, metal, corrugated steel, rebar, I-beams, you know, it it was just, it was just an intertangled, it looked like a junkyard, right? And then someone just sprinkled dirt all over it. So we dug furiously for like five or six hours. We, we were able to cut out a square that was probably, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but almost the size of a coffin because that was kind of where the odor permeated for the dog. And we cut and we dug and we, we almost passed out from heat exhaustion because it was still pretty high. And after like about that six hours, we were able to finally get down about two or three feet, which was so frustrating, right? We figured we could be down, you know, 100 feet by then. So the dog went in and started barking and he goes, you got it. I said, sir, what are you talking about? What do we have? And in the corner was some human remains. And I don't want to be so graphic, but maybe it's just the truth. It looked as if someone took a pound of chopped meat and rolled it in dirt and threw it there. And he said, that's it. You've got it. He goes, bag it, which, you know, you put it into a hazmat bag because they're going to try to identify it. And I just looked at him and I said, sir, are you screwing with us? Are you friggin' screwing with us? We dug six hours and that's what, what we were looking for. He goes, my friend, he goes, you guys are used to retrieving whole human beings. 
be they battered and destroyed in a car wreck or burned beyond recognition in a fire, you're used to bringing out human beings. He goes, there aren't going to be fully intact humans in this involvement. He said, you just found someone's loved one. They will be identified. You will give them closure. And we begged that human being, that soul, and we, we sat down in exhaustion and cried, the four or five guys of us that were in that little crew. We just cried. And I thought to myself, I said, you know what? That friggin' guy last night was right. They are all dead. But even still, up until the point when they said, okay, there is no more viable life, all of us there went about it as we're still going to rescue these innocent souls who were killed and our coworkers who were killed. In the months after 9-11, you've said many of the trucks at the firehouses were gone, but the boots remained. And those were the boots of all the friends that you lost that day. No one had the courage to move them. Yeah. Can you talk to me about survivor's guilt? How crippling can it be? Is it a burden that you carry for your entire life? Yeah, those boots. Um, when a call comes in in a firehouse, you you kick off your shoes or your duty quarter boots and you hop into, you know, your bunker pants, which has the fire boots integrated with them. And those shoes remain. And then when you come back from the call, you take off the bunker pants and boots and let them remain there and you throw your shoes back on and you go back about your day. So for months in many firehouses throughout the city, those, those shoes existed. And Guys couldn't do it. They couldn't bear to take those shoes away. So they would just go next to them and take theirs off. And finally, what they ended up doing was having a new guy who just got hired because they had to hire like a thousand guys right away. Because so many guys were so seriously injured and, and obviously 343 killed. And he'd say, hey, new guy, do me a favor. Go over there, take Shalaz's shoes, put them in his locker because they couldn't do it. Sorry, I, I, I got caught up in that emotion. And, and what was the rest of it? So, uh, sorry. About survivor's guilt. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. the I'm so sorry. Carrying the burden. Yes. Yeah. Survivor's guilt is real. Um, I started having it immediately because coming over to Brooklyn Bridge, watching that other tower go down, I had guilt because I knew I was too late to help my friends and they were now dead. And then as the days went on and we realized how many of the guys were actually gone and how many human souls that were at work or on those planes were gone. And I wasn't. And four days later, I got home finally for the first time. And my wife, my beautiful wife, Annie, said, well, I have some good news. We're going to have another baby. And I said, wow, that's a blessing. And I said, Johnny's wife's pregnant too, my friend John Sharp, but he's gone. They just said today that they're not coming out. They're gone. And I wanted so much to just jump up with joy that I'm having another child, right? Because it's just, man, they're just the joy of life. And I had such a pall of guilt 
such a shroud over me because they said, John's not going to experience this. And in May of 2012, my beautiful daughter was born, Catherine. And three days before that, John's son, John Jr. was born. And he's never held that beautiful child. And I've been given a chance to see her now grow into a beautiful young woman, intelligent, just, just such an addition to this world. Every event that I've gone to, and I've sat there looking at her smiling, so proud of her achievements. And then in my mind, I'm going, am I, am I worthy of being here right now? How come John's not here right now for his son? So it never goes away. I guess you just learn how to manage it. And then what happened was I, I went through a pretty, well, really, really bad leukemia in 2011, and I really shouldn't be here. And I'm so grateful, so blessed and grateful I am. And I was in there for a month in the hospital, Methodist Hospital. They were incredible. And they actually used me as a little bit of like a docent. I was, I was out of my mind with chemo because they gave me two and a half years worth of chemo in seven days. Burned out my bone marrow. I felt like I was burning to death from the inside out. But they knew how much of a zest I had for life. Initially, I was asking to die. I was praying to die. I was in so much pain. I just wanted to go. I couldn't do it. And that first night of the chemo, vision came to me, visions of, of all the people I loved who, who had died very quick. It was just like a second or two seconds. They'd be smiling and they were gone. At the very end, the last person, I saw my, I saw one of the, one of the people I saw a smile was my friend Jack from Talada 15 down in Seaport. And I'm like, wait a minute, Jack, Jack's not dead. And then right after that was my mother-in-law. And um, a lot of guys go through life hating their mother-in-law, right? Because sometimes <laughs> they can be meddling and difficult. I adore my mother-in-law. She was such a great woman. She used to call me her boyfriend because we just sit and talk. You know, I, I, like, to, I like to really know about people, good people. And we'd sit and have conversations about everything, about Ireland, about religion, about you know, the, the job. Because you know she was a fireman's wife. And she passed away six months before I died. She didn't deserve her fate. She was in a coma for a long time on machines. Just a woman who went to church every single day and prayed for everybody. And I saw her smiling Irish face. And she said, hi, my boyfriend. And I said, Nan, let me come with you. Let me come with you. She said, no, not yet, my boyfriend. He's not ready. She said, you go back. You have things to do. But when it's time, you'll, you'll be here. And I said, no, no, I want to go. I'm in so much pain. And she started laughing. No, no. And she started fading away. And I, and I, chemo did some stuff to my mind. It was, they said it, one of my doctors said he had patients who said the stuff I was receiving was so powerful that it was worse than the ride they took on PCP in the 60s or 70s because my cancer is normally found in elderly men. One of my other friends, Gene, came in a couple hours later after that vision, and he was crying. And he's a big dude who don't cry. And he just he looks like uh, Ivan Drago, you know, from Rocky Four, right? And I said, Gene, what, what the hell's going on, man? Am I dying? Am I, am I out of here? And he said, no, it's not you. It's not you. You're good. And I went, it's Jack. 
And he's like, how the frig did you, who the frig told you? I, I said not to mention anything. I said, Jackie's dead, right? He said, how do you know? I said, I saw him. He says, what are you talking about? I said, I told him the whole story I just told you about the visions. And I says, the second to last one before my mother-in-law was Jackie smiling at me, but he didn't say anything. He just waved. And it freaked me out. And he broke down and he says, Jackie died at three o'clock this morning in a motorcycle wreck. He hit a tree, severed his leg. He rolled down into a ditch. He threw his helmet up on the road. It was upstate New York. Passerby motorists saw it. They came, they flew a helicopter in. And he said to the state trooper on a helicopter, hey bro, what took you so damn long? And that was Jackie, everything was a joke. And he closed his eyes and he died. I had those visions at three o'clock in the morning. So some of the naysayers may say, I'm just flowering it up for drama or this or that. I don't care what they have to say. I know I had those visions because I asked the nurse, what time was I freaking out? And you know, it was, it was scary. And it was a wild, violent thunderstorm going on right while I was having the visions. So getting back to coincidences or miracles, that to me was Jackie telling me, I'm on my way, I'm going to heaven, I'm okay, and I'm pulling for you. But I don't know, Shalaz, that's a, that's a really tough one now because, again, why did he die? Why did I not? Why did Jeff pass the other day? Why did I not? Why did so many of these guys that I knew that fought for years on chemo, on treatment, on, and they're not here? This wonderful, great guy, Paul, who just died, a month ago was a captain, one of the nicest human beings I ever met. I had no idea he was sick. He went in with an aneurysm back in April or May. And they said, look, we fixed that, but you got a massive brain tumor. You got two, three months to live. Go home, be comfortable. Why? Why him, not me? So this isn't for needing attention. This isn't for looking for some notoriety. I... I don't need that. I already worked on a TV show, you know, back in the day, I worked on rescue me driving a fire truck and it was fun, but I don't, I don't need attention, but I will not shut up because I just want people to know about what happened, about the sacrifices that great people made and about the people who are still suffering in silence. And, you know, I'm hoping that somebody is going to listen to your show and say, wow, I never knew any of that. Yeah. And now they do. Can I ask you while you were talking about survivor's guilt and surviving chemotherapy, you've served as a firefighter, you were at Ground Zero, you were a police officer doing the crack wars in New York City as well. And now you spoke about the burden of survivor's guilt. At the 9-11 memorial in London, there are the words, grief is the price we pay for love, which the Queen uttered for at the, at the event of 9-11. Which out of all of these being a firefighter at all the incidents you witnessed, leukemia, chemotherapy, survivor's guilt, which is the most difficult experience out of all of these? You know, there's so many of them collectively. Um, one of them that was really powerful, that really just uh, hit me hard was I'm so aware that my children grew up with me in their presence. Um, 
I was absent sometimes, you know, when, when the whole first nine months of the recovery, I was physically and emotionally absent from my family. And my wife was pregnant and I was a mess. Did it affect and your relationship with them as well? It, it did because I wasn't there. And they were, my, my children, my son and my daughter, Emily and Paul, were little and they needed attention. And they just said, where's daddy? Where's daddy? And my little one obviously was, was not born, but and my wife needed attention and she needed help. And I, I wasn't there. So were you and aware of it? Were you aware of this no. hopelessness or darkness inside you that was changing you? No, because what it was is I, I had a mission. I had a job and my job was to keep going to my regular shifts, serve the city. Then when we would get off duty, we would go down to the site and we would help look for our missing loved ones. And then we would go to memorials and funerals. And then we'd go out and drink, right? Because that's what firemen and cops do. When someone you love dies, we, we drink. You know, I'm Irish, it's Guinness, and sometimes too much. And then you go back to work, and then weeks go by, and then months go by, and you have hardly been home. And I remember my wife, as just before she was having a baby, something, I forget what it was, it might have been for my daughter or my son, and, and, she, and I said, I can't, I can't, I have to step up for an honor guard. So-and-so is being laid out, and, and they need guys on the honor guard. And she said, oh, really? How about stepping up for us once in a while? Stepping up in the fire department means doing the right thing. Go, you know, attend. And she goes, how about stepping up for, for us maybe once in a while? And she walked away crying. And it blew me away because I was so caught up in my own little orbit, right? Feeling sorry for myself, feeling sorry for the guys. Just, I don't know, just like this whole, you know, soup of emotions. And I realized, I said, holy crap. I says. I haven't been there for my family in months. And I started to try to make some changes and, and better that. But then I had, I had survivor's guilt. I had anger. I had maybe touches of PTSD. I, yeah, I do. I, I'm, I'm honest, proud to admit it. I'm not proud, but I have it. And my anger, you know, I get angry a lot easier. Um, I'm impatient. I, I, I still try to be a good, decent soul, but uh it's harder to hold back sometimes you know especially when i see injustice something just tr something just goes off bullying just i because to me 9 11 was a big act of bullying right to a high high level it took a long time my wife feels we lost 10 years of our relationship i said my god i didn't know it was that bad she said yeah it was and i said i'm so sorry because she's so devoted and such a good mother and good wife. But then what happened is unfortunately, it started all over again with cancer. Because now I lost the job I loved that I would still do for free. Stupid as that sounds, I loved it, right? I know guys who would give anything to get out on a pension, whatever, they, they can't wait to bail out the door. Me, I wanted to be like my old man and stay 35 years. You know, I still feel like I can give them a good day's work. I'm, I paid a price the next day with pain but compared to some of the people they're hiring now that sued to get on and now don't want to do the job, I give them a lot better effort than that. But it, it took a toll. It took a toll on my relationships. Uh, they've forgiven me, the people I love, because I love people severely. I will do anything for anyone I love. And uh, Can I ask you a question yeah. here? And I apologize for no, the no, interruption. Okay. Looking back now... Are you proud of the fact that you were there 
in New York as a fireman doing 9-11? Does that give you pride? And this might be the fireman in you because you were there for your country in the moment they needed you the most and you contributed in any way that you could. Does that give your life some meaning or purpose? Or do you regret the fact that you were then? This might be the husband or the father in you because of the toll it had on you, on your health, on your relationship with your family, with your wife and your kids. You know, I, I almost left the job in 1993. Um, I got... I got called just after that bombing. I got called by the Clearwater, Florida Fire Department for employment. I was taking a test down there. A good friend of mine, Jimmy Carino, who's a New York guy, but was a fireman down there. He, he set me up. And, and uh, one of my other dear friends, Frank Salfelder, who was actually at the 93 bombing, we got hired together. And there's a picture of Frank at the first bombing. And he found some lady's prosthetic leg, but he couldn't find the lady, right? And... Frank tragically died of cancer related to the job in 1995. But we were both hired by Clearwater, and we were going to go down here together. And my wife and I had a big falling out because initially she's, her brother was down there, and she said, okay, I'm okay with it. And then when push came to shove, she's like, oh, no, I'm not going to Florida. And I was so mad because I like it down there. It's a different lifestyle, a um, little more laid back, you know, the city, I don't know, it was like, maybe it was just after the bombing. I, I just had enough. I saw the writing on the wall. Turned it down. And on August 24th of 2001, I was with Jimmy at the World Trade Center. And there's a picture of us at the towers. And Engine 10 and Ladder 10 had actually responded on an alarm. And Jimmy, the morning of 9-11, was showing those pictures to his crew in Clearwater. And he said, hey... You, you jokers, you know, what would you do if you had a fire this high up? And he's pointing, at, the picture's pointing up to the roof of the Trade Center. Ten minutes later, one of the guys comes running out to the fire truck, and he says, Jimmy, Jimmy, the, the World Trade Center's on fire. It's been crashed into. And he's, he's like, come on, stop. Don't, don't joke around like that. And he's like, I'm not kidding. Jimmy went running in. Oh, my God. He said to me months later, he said, I thought you were gone. I was so angry that you didn't take the job in Clearwater. You would have been safe. And I said, Jimmy, if I, Jim, if I took that job and wasn't there, knowing my friends were gone, I could not have lived with that. I, I, that, would have, that would have pushed me over the edge because I would have felt like somehow I abandoned them, even though I didn't mean it that way. So I'm so proud, as you could see, I wear the gear, you know, I, I'm my beloved ladder company that I, I learned to be a man and a father and a firefighter at. I worked with some of the greatest, greatest human beings you could ever imagine. Doesn't mean we're better than anybody, but we try to carry ourselves to a better level. And these men, they do. So I'm so proud to say to people, I was a New York City firefighter. Unfortunately, it was cut short by cancer. They didn't give me a choice but to retire. I begged the doctor that day, not the doctor who almost killed me, but another one. I begged her, please, ma'am, please. I cried my eyes out. Please let me stay on the department. This is what I do. And she actually started crying, and it showed her sense of humanity. And she said, I'm so sorry. We can't let you back with a blood cancer, which is technically incurable. I mean, I looked. Okay, I guess today, right? I mean, you know, it was really red from the leukemia or whatever, but like 
it's never going to go away. You know, I always have the cells in my body and it's almost like they're laying there like snipers in the grass. When are they going to jump up and start shooting? I don't know. I was on a couple relapses over the years and then they just all of a sudden reverted. And then this past November, it looked like I was in full relapse, but it turned out to be Vax injuries. So I take remission very seriously. I take it as such a sacred gift because my remission has run now 11 years. And like my doctor says, that's a really long time. They, did, they couldn't give me a time in the beginning. And that haunted me, frightened the crap out of me every day. Because I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, the leukemia you have is found on elderly men that worked in refineries making jet fuel and diesel fuel and whatever. And you got it from the stuff that was burning. He says, but normally they get it when they're in their 70s. If they get into remission, something else fails, their heart, their liver, whatever, and they die. He goes, so it's hard to say if you're going to die from the cancer or he goes, because we never see, at the time I was turning 43 years old, we never see 43 years old, old guys with this. But as crazy as this sounds, I thank God for the cancer I have because it's humbled me. It's made me try harder to be a better human being. And it's made me realize how, I always knew this, I was always in touch with this, but how fragile life is, is so precious. And people just run around like it's just a joke. And it, it just really pisses me off because they, they don't get it. They don't, every day you get up and you could get up and look out the window and go, oh, wow, hey, there's the sun. That's a great day. So how do you view death now? Are you afraid of it? Or have you made peace with it? Because you've said about firefighters that if you say you have no fear of dying in this industry, you're full of you're, crap. Yeah, full of crap, or you're a danger to everyone. Yep. So how do you view death now? Still scared of it. Scared to death. No pun intended. I, I, I am. Uh, I'm not ready to, you know, accept it. Um, I've always feared it actually, and maybe that that evil guy is right. Maybe I do talk about death too much and you know because I thought my dad was gone right after my grandfather and I used to have little panic attacks when I was 10 that I was going to die too right and I went to talk to a priest and he explained the whole mysteries of death to me didn't really make the fear go away too much but it made it a little more understandable for a 10 year old I feared it because I have been surrounded by it a lot and I wonder sometimes, I, I, it's hard to explain this, but, you know, one of my best friends from the, from the fire academy, Kevin Kane, he died when we were probies, which means your first year, or rookies, as other places call it. And Kevin was a Catholic priest at one point. He was an airborne ranger, and, uh, you know, he then became a priest, but then he left the priesthood because he wanted to be a, fi a firefighter like his father. So guys used to make fun of him, and, and, and they used to be pretty brutal. Some guys, not everybody, but some of the guys in the academy used to be pretty brutal to him. And back in the day, I was uh, much, much leaner and in much better shape. So the minute I saw Kevin being tormented, I, I went right in those guys' faces. And I'd be like, you leave him the F alone. And again, I'm not a tough guy, but I will protect. And on September 13th, 1991, which was September 13th, was only a few days ago, 
Kevin burned to death. He was trying to rescue two homeless people who ended up actually lighting the fire. And I went to his wake with one of our colleagues from the academy, Jimmy Young. And Jimmy, I'll never forget it, was so upset because his dress uniform hadn't been finished yet. So he was embarrassed to just go wearing the shirt and the hat. I said, don't worry about Jimmy. I says, we'll go talk to Kevin's parents. And his father was a chief, the retired chief, Kevin's. And he was so touched that, you know, we were his friends from the academy. He goes, oh, yeah, I know. He talked about you guys. And, you, you know, and I said, sir, we loved him. And, and Jimmy and I were haunted by it because we were really close with him and we loved him. And then Jimmy burned to death in 1994. So I'm not going to lie to you and say that I've been spooked my whole life. Um, to me, it's just an admission of, of, is it a fear? I did my job. I think I, I did my job pretty well. I mean, I wasn't the best fireman, but I, I certainly wasn't the worst. And I didn't claim to be anything more than I was, which was a guy who would give you 100% and try his best. After those tragedies, did I, did I operate maybe a little more cautious, especially as a lieutenant? Because now I have men under my charge and I, don't, I do not want to be the one to call their wife or their mother or their father to say, I'm sorry, but you know, Solage is gone because maybe I didn't protect them enough. So that, that whole shroud of experiencing that death so close to home and so firsthand, it's haunted me for a long time. And sometimes they say things happen in threes, right? Sometimes the Irish are a little superstitious. And I used to think to myself, am I going to be number three? And you know, I, I, when I got into that fire truck wreck and I couldn't walk, I was a little spooked for a little while. And I took a little bit of a hiatus in a slower, uh, slower area of the city only because I wasn't sure. I had a lot of doubts. And then once those doubts subsided and I realized, no, I want to be active. I want to be in, involved in this department. That's when I got to 114 and, and, and then the love affair started because now I was feeling more comfortable, more confident. Um, and I was surrounded by these old guys that weren't going to let anything happen to me and they were going to teach me. And not that the guys where I started in 105 weren't like that, because Henry Miller, of course, and many of them. But I was able to get past my doubts and my fears. But I'm not going to lie to you, that, that uncertainty chased me. Um, when you're that close to two people that suffer that badly, that burn to death, that's a vicious way to, to leave this earth. Vicious. And uh, I, I just, uh, I know my death is, I guess, sort of a mystery because, you know, I could find out when I go for my quarterly checkup, you know, in a few weeks, I could find out from Dr. Peter that, you know, uh, hey, I'm sorry, it's back and it's back with a vengeance. And, you know, this time around, I'm expecting that, but I'm not looking forward to it. Um, I'm scared of the last moment when, you know, like my friend Jeff who just went, you know, and his brother was talking about his last moments and one of our friends and he was peaceful and he was still joking up till moments before. And I don't know if I could be as brave as Jeff and these other guys like to face it that way. It's almost laugh in its face, but I'm scared of it because 
my faith is so strong, but sometimes that guy who, who questioned, you know, creation with his whole Big Bang theory, well, what if he ends up right and there is no afterlife and there's nothing? You just go into the ground or you just, you just get, you know, cremated or whoever your family chooses to deal with you. What if there is nothing past this? I'm scared of that because my whole life I've believed that I'm going to reunite with these people I love so much. My, my grandparents, God, I missed them so much. They were such good people, such good, decent, humble human beings, both sets of grandparents. And I think about so many of my friends that I've lost, and I don't know what it is. It's like sometimes I think I'm a jinx and I'm snake bitten. Like, don't, don't hang with me because you're going to get bad news soon. But I just feel like, I don't know why, my, one of my friend's kids around, he goes, yeah, when you go, I'm going to get a big, huge, you know, tattoo of you on, your, on my back because, uh, you know, I have one for my friend John and one for my father who, thank God, is here. But I guess it haunts me and maybe I do talk about it too much. But I talk about it with a respect and a reverence that um, those who know me and love me they know how much I love life and I love them. You know, I got jumped by three, oh, excuse me, four young teenagers just up the road here, 8th Avenue and 14th Street, coming off the subway at three in the morning after a stage job. And I was wearing an American flag hat and a Wounded Warrior shirt. And they were looking to beat me up and one guy was filming and two guys were doing this tough guy thing and one guy was throwing punches right at my face but not landing them and they were cursing me out basically. It was based on race, that I was a white MFer, I was this, I was that, whatever. And I was scared, there's four guys and I'm an old guy. So I got my back to the wall. I had my army backpack on which made me a little vulnerable. But I knew on 14th Street, cause I was a cop down there that every five minutes patrol car goes by, east to west, west to east. And I'm like, let me just wait these guys out. Let me get a wall behind me. Let me look around at my surroundings. And maybe those guys will be coming by and bail me out. And all of a sudden, eight other people came and they said, yeah, F that white guy, mess him up, this, that, whatever. And I was so heartbroken because I spent my life in the hood. I've breathed life into black babies and older folks and all races, all creeds, did whatever I friggin' could keep them alive or to get them, to go get them in a burning building, whatever. And I was infuriated that this kid is judging me like I'm some bad, like whatever it is that he's making me out to be. So finally, I realized, wow, I'm running out of parachutes here. The cops aren't coming. They're probably on a call right now. And they're on demand as we are, you know, as it is now. I looked the guy right in the face and I said, you know what, man, I probably delivered you in the projects 19, 20 years ago. I said, but if you're so friggin' jacked off at the world and so mad at me, I caused your problems. I'm not sure how, but I said, if I did, then let's do this. And I put my hands up and the guy with the phone looked and this kid looked at me. I said, this old guy is going to whoop your ass. I said, because I'm not what you're saying. Let's friggin' do this. Now, part of me was like, oh, this is really stupid. They're going to jump me and beat me down. And the guy with the phone grabbed his friend and he says, sir, sir, you know, we just do this to make people beg mercy so we can get street cred and put these videos out there and go viral. I said, yeah. I said, well, you fucked with the wrong guy, dude. I says, because I'm going to make sure my boys over in the lockup see to it. 
you get the star treatment for the weekend. And I'm going, oh boy, your big mouth just really got you in trouble because I'm figuring it's either going to, it's, they're going to take off or they're really going to pound me. And they scattered, they took off. And my heart was pounding. And I called my wife and she says, what's wrong, what's wrong? I said, look, I'm okay, I got jumped, um, but, but you know, I, I'm all right, I'm on my way home. And I said to myself, what is, this is crazy, I'm working 17 hours a day, I'm killing myself to better my family, put them through college with no debt. And I got this little piece of crap judging me, assuming that I'm whatever it is he thinks I am. And I realized, I says, man, the world is just so broken. We're so judgmental, so stereotypical. But what broke my heart the most was, did this guy have any idea that I gave 150% of my soul and my life to the people in New York? And I never once stopped and said, excuse me, how do you vote? Um, where do you go to church? What? Oh, you're the wrong color. I, I'm, I'm not feeling it today. I'm going to get back on my truck and get out of here. Never do that. And I still stopped. I see someone go down on the sidewalk, on the subway. I stop because that's the right thing to do. Can I ask you a follow-up to this? Yes. We were talking about death as well. And you mentioned when you were, when you were going through chemotherapy, you had a vision of your mother-in-law who said, he's not ready yet. He's got more to do. Yes. And we're talking about doing good as well. Yes. What's next for Nels? You've done so much for your country already. You've given it 150%. I completely agree with you. What's next? What, what do you think she was talking about when she said he's got more to do? Well, I, I haven't done any more than anybody else who's in this industry, right? Who's in the re emergency response world or the military world. I did my job. I got paid, right? I mean, I made a decent living, right? And I got a pension. So as my father would always say, no one owes you crap in life so i'm just proud that i had the opportunity to do it for a long time i love doing it and i really mean this i do it for free because i just i get such a satisfaction of helping people it just it's to me i don't need drugs i like wine you know here and there right but i get high off of doing what's right it just i don't know it just it just works for me so I'm not sure where God is actually sending me. Like, you know, um, I'm, I'm thankful I have my stagehand job and those guys work really hard. I mean, and, and I'm at the physical point where I'm having a hard time, you know, keeping up with the young bucks, you know. I'm gonna hear them snickering on the side and then we, it's time to pick up a big old heavy piece of furniture. And I know they're making fun of me. I'm like, all right, guys, whenever you're ready, I got my hand up. But it's not fulfilling for me. I... I want to. I want to get heavy involved in philanthropy. I, I just want to try to do good things for good people. You know, I kid around and I, I said, you know, I, I want to bump into Elon Musk, right, and say, hey, Elon, I got a really good idea for you. You know, he does a lot of great, great things, right? Great human being. How about we take one of these old military bases, and we call it Veterans Village, and we let some of these poor homeless vets that are out there struggling. The main reason they're struggling is obviously they've seen a lot and they've been hurt, but they need a place to live. You know, it's so expensive. I mean, how, where do you go where it's not like crushing to live anymore? Give them a chance. Restore one of these old veterans, uh, excuse me, these old military bases, get these guys back on their feet and now set them off on 
missions to help others? You know, is it to build wheelchairs for people who need it? Or, you know, uh, I don't know, like whatever it is, but just to do some good. You know, I, I, I'm involved with a, a foundation um, called Cully Strong. And one of my son's friends, he passed away from mental illness three years ago. And this beautiful young man, Sean, and uh, his family and friends decided to form a foundation in his name. And, and I've been blessed to try to somewhat be involved in it. And they get guide dogs, therapy dogs, therapy dogs for people who are really suffering from uh, PTSD, depression, anxiety. They find that these dogs, I guess, help very much with these people suffering from that. And I just recently with a cousin of mine, um, we, we, he more or less got behind it. We donated a dog to help this young lady who is a, a veteran who's suffering from it. And to see the smile on their face when these folks get the dog, man, it's just incredible. So I just, I just want to find a way to like get involved and get behind something that makes a difference. You know, like there's, there's so many people that are involved in these organizations, these rich folks that get behind like these obscure politically bent, you know, fundraisers, this and that. And hey, hey, listen, God bless them. It's their money. It's their decision. But I'm talking about like putting smiles on people's faces and making a difference in their life. And, you know, things like Tunnel to Towers and things like Holly Strong and, you know, hopefully trying to find a way to help out homeless vets. Like to me, that's just, I don't know, that would be like my new purpose if I could somehow do that on a permanent basis. And I'm not talking about I want to be paid or I no. I want to just dedicate my time and get these people with the means to get behind it. So I'm hoping that that's going to come along. I, I don't know, Salaz, but you know what? I firmly believe God is pointing me where I'm supposed to be. You know, I mean, I met you and I didn't just came out of the blue and I'm I'm so glad I you know, I, I came here today. I'm sorry I was late. There's a lot of traffic, you know, Lincoln Tunnel. But uh, but no, I, I just, I feel like it's that old roadmap, you know, or now on the phone. You know, when you get rerouted on the phone, you're going somewhere. And all of a sudden it's like, what the hell, Siri? Where am I going now? All right. I feel like God does that with my life. Like I just, I literally get up in the morning. I thank him for the day. I thank him for the rest. And I say, what, what? If it's a day I obviously don't have obligations and work or whatever, I'm like, all right, well, where am I going today? What are we doing? And, and sometimes it's just a blank, you know, nothing. And then all of a sudden I come across someone on my day and, and you know, something stupid, they're hurt and they need help or whatever, or, you know, like stop for a car accident or, or change a, a flat tire for an old lady. And I go, all right, okay, God, that's where we're supposed to be today, you know? Well, I'm glad for all the work you've done and the work you continue to do. The work you do, what Tunnels to Towers does, it's really makes us believe there is good in the world. Last two questions for you. You mentioned at the beginning of the interview about 9-12. You've spoken extensively about 9-11. Yes. Let's talk about 9-12, the day after, when the entire country came together. What did you see? What did you feel? And what did I tell you about this country? I saw love. I saw resilience determination but i also saw hurt and i saw pain um i saw the aftermath of people at their worst but i saw 
the example, the true example of people at their best, which was to give anything they possibly could to try to bring those, those poor souls home. Uh, you know, it's the dichotomy, I guess, of, of the good and the bad, you know, the, the evil and the, the pure. And, um, but the people lined up there that day, it was sort of like, you know, they restored your faith. You realized the goodness, the depth of the goodness. And I, and I, I think what it was is America and even the world felt a little bit vulnerable because there was a lot of destruction. And I don't know what's happened, Salaj, as far as why have we become so jaded and so angry and so, I don't know, like, like I just don't understand. You would think as time went on and societies meshed more you know what i mean by is there's so many people now from so many different countries we're all from somewhere else right and we we're all living life we're all in the human condition like wouldn't it become obvious to people like hey that guy's just like me he's just trying to make a living for his family or that you know girl or that you know i don't know like i just feel like we're losing our commonality like we don't relate anymore because we're so like some people are so galvanized by issues. They, they will, if I'm, in my views, I'm say, you know, I'm right to life and I'm fairly conservative in my views. That's it for them. They don't want to know another thing about me. They hate me. Like that's it, you know? But I don't feel that way about someone that's an ultra liberal progressive. I'd be like, look, I may not agree with you, but... I'm still willing to talk to you and get to know you. So that's, and I'm not trying to say that, you know, it doesn't work both ways with that, with those sentiments with people. But I came from a time when people would have dialogue, you know, if you had disagreements or you didn't see the same way, you know, instead of yelling at you and screaming at you, and I say, hey, Slash, you know, talk to me about that. Like, what, what do you, why do you feel that way? Or why do you think, it's better for me to be that way. Like I would give you that op opportunity now, boom, they shut the door immediately. That's it. So we're so like my kids say to me sometimes, why do you talk to so many people? You know, if, if we're passing on the street or I'll be like, Hey, good morning. How you doing? And they look at you like, what the frick did you say? And obviously in New York, you can't do that to everybody. Cause you just spend your whole day, you know, <laughs> greeting people. Yeah. But, but when it's kind of a one-on-one -on -one occurrence, you know, and you don't get it back. And it's it's kind of strange. Like everybody's so distrusting and so jaded. But then when you do come across a nice person, they're stunned. It's like, you, whoa, you spent a few minutes having a conversation with me? I said, yeah, I mean, you know, you seem like a nice person. And, you know, I remember like I was on vacation with my family in Florida, you know, last winter. And, and this elderly lady thought I was out of my mind for swimming in the ocean when it was 65 degrees. And I said, well, ma'am, I'm from up north. I said, this, this is a heat wave for me, you know? <laughs> yeah. And we got into this, the most beautiful conversation. She was been a nurse for 45 years. And, and she was quite a bit older than me. And she goes, you know, she goes, she asked my name. And I said, she goes, Nels, you know, people don't talk anymore. I said, I know, ma'am. I said, it's so sad. I've learned so much from talking to so many people. And it's not like networking, you know, there's people who are out there just 
daily networking because it's for business. It's for like, that's what they do. I just love to, I mean, again, I don't want to say I hate because that's a bad word, but I don't like bad people. I really don't want to be around them at all. I don't want to engage with them, but I love meeting nice people because everybody's got a story, right? Now, if I passed you on the street, I would have no idea where you're from, why you're here, what you do. And now I'm going, that's pretty friggin' cool, right? And, and like, we, we're from totally different cultures, different worlds. But yet, here we are in the same city, right? Enjoying the same beautiful sunny day. Yeah. And I don't know. I just, you know, I learned that from my Irish mother, man. She, you know, I, I overtalk, right? My wife says it, and she's right. My mom overtalks. But my mom is such a character. She will do anything for anybody. And I remember she used to say this, and I used to think it was silly. She goes, I know who I am, but do they know who they are? And I went, and I'm like, now I'm going, wow, that's pretty profound. It's so true. I know what I am. I am not perfect. I, I, you know, there's people, like I said, don't like me, don't like my views, don't like my ruddy complexion, don't like my receding hairline, don't whatever, but that's okay. I feel kind of comfortable in who I am. I, I truly try to be a decent soul, but I just don't know why we're just getting more and more and more jaded. You know, like I, I, I've said this many times and people are tired of hearing it. Now I want to open up a hug booth, right? Just now right over there in Times Square, free. Do you need a hug? Bring it in. Give them a big old hug. When I used to work on a show, Rescue Me, that's a tough, tough business, the film industry. And there's a lot of not nice people in it. It's mostly, you know, the money people. And it, they're, just, they're just cutthroat. It is cut. And people would drive two and a half hours to get there. And you work 15, 16 hours on a set. And it's frenetic. It's fast. It's everyone's barking at everybody. And it's the business. So as I got to know the people, we worked together for seven years. And they get to know you. And you spend a lot of time with them. So they felt comfortable with it, and I felt comfortable with it. I like to hug people. And a couple, many of them said to me, they'd come up and they'd just, hey. I'll be like, all right, bring it in. And kidding around, I said, well, why, why do you like hugging me? I just, I had to know, kind of. And then they would say, because you just make me feel better about the day. You make me feel like I count. I know another guy, Uncle Artie, we call him. Same thing. He's a bigger hugger than me. I mean, he is just such a character. He's a fireman. And it's so true. He says the same thing. He says, it just, you could see the smile on people's face. It's nothing dubious. It's nothing. It's just sincere and platonic. Hey, I hope you have a good day. And we're all in this human condition together. We're all here to achieve our goals, work at our jobs, love our friends, love our families. I think pretty much most people in the world agree with that. And it's just the bad people that, that they don't like that because that, that doesn't fit their agenda, you know. I hope we can replicate that feeling of togetherness, of love, of community that we saw on 9-12. And yes. it's sad that it took an event of that scale to bring it together, but hopefully... It was so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, it's faded away, Shalaj. You know, I, I mean... I, I pray it comes back because it was the worst of times, but yet it was the best of times. I pray it comes back as well. My final question for you at 6.30 a.m. at 9.11, your daughter asked you, which truck are you driving today? 
and you said the oil truck. Yes. And she said, then you should be safe today. But you won. You and a lot of your friends chose to put your lives at stake to help your country in need. You lost many friends that day and continued to lose friends in the years after because of the rarest form of cancers that they developed due to all the toxic fumes they inhale. Looking back now, can you tell your daughter of that time and the kids growing up today, the generations to follow, who probably have no idea what 9-11 was, what, why did you choose to put your lives at stake that day? What were you fighting for? What message do you want to leave behind for generations to come? You know, I, I speak for myself. You know, sometimes I've, I've heard a comment from a couple of people, oh, were you the only guy at 9-11? No, I wasn't. But if someone like you is kind enough to interview me and ask me about it, I, of course, it's my individual experience because everybody who was there had an individual different one. But I take it as an honor to be asked to talk about it because I just want people to not forget it. And especially those great people who've given their lives and are still giving their lives. I just don't want them forgotten. When I look back, you know, 9-11 was just an enhanced version of what responders and military do every day. There's hundreds of thousands of people around the world that put on, <clears throat> put on a uniform. Some of them add a gun belt to it and a bulletproof vest or a stethoscope or fire gear or military, you know, flak jackets, whatever. But the one common thread that we all have in the emergency and military world is no matter where in the world it is we're willing to give up our tomorrow so you get home today your loved ones we don't care what you believe where you're from what you've done what you haven't done you know, not 100% of the people in, in, you know, the rescue field, military field, medical field, they're not all that devoted, right? Not, but most majority of them are, right? But I've, I've come across good and bad in all walks of life, right? My intentions that day were to get there as fast as I can to help my colleagues well, but getting back to it, it was, yeah, so it was, it was a very, very large, a very enhanced version of what we do on a daily basis. We were not expecting something of that scale. Just yeah. no one, I, I, we were expecting something, but not that big. But I would think that just about every person that ran in there, especially the, the, the guys who got there first, they probably looked up and said, oh man, there's a real good chance I'm dying right now. And a couple guys, there's been testimonies where they said, oh, I'll see you on the other side. Like they knew. And I'm like, wow, that's brave. Like, could I have done that? I guess I wouldn't want to let my guys down. And, and my, I would have. But that would have been a real tough decision to make. My whole thing was, I believe in everyone's freedom. No matter what it is that they believe or choose to do, they're free to do it. And people, evil people, were angry at those freedoms. So they wanted to send a message or maybe, you know, I don't know, change things or whatever. So my whole thing was, I need to get there. I need to try to help. Whatever it is they're gonna make me do when I get there, is it shuttle people out of there or do CPR on victims or, I didn't know. 
but I wanted to go do my job. I wanted to help protect people, save people, and preserve their freedoms. You know, we should be free in this world to, to safely walk around our world, to go about our day without someone impinging upon that and trying to victimize us or hurt us or steal from us. Our freedom should be to live that life of protection. So there are people that are charged with being those protectors, you know, military, first responders, police, fire, EMS, medical. That's what we do. And we take it really seriously. And, you know, I say to people, young people who ask me about going into those careers, career lines, I said, look, I don't want to sound cavalier. I don't want to sound whatever, but are you willing to give your life? And if they say no, then I said, the wrong profession. Just, there's no insult, just, but it's not for you. Just don't waste your time. And I think those people who ran in there, especially in those first waves, they just didn't even hesitate. And they went right charging in because it was, it was what they did and it was the right thing to do. And then you take someone like Father Judge who so strongly believed in his faith and he went there to pray over the scene for protection for those who were responding. And he died in the course of doing that. And wow, that's pretty powerful. He believed in God so strongly that he was willing to run into a war zone to protect his flock, so to speak. And that's, that's pretty profound. And that's why when I look at America and I look at our flag, it's a symbol of freedom and beauty. And you be you and I be me and everyone just be themselves. And when people desecrate that flag, like I was mentioning a little earlier, breaks my heart because they really realize what it stands for and how powerful of a message it sends to the bad guys, which says, you're not pulling that crap. You're not hurting us. You're, you know, and, and some people think America's bold and brash because we try to protect the world. Yeah, I, I get that concept. I like to protect victims when they're being bullied because it's happened to me and it sucks. And I think America feels that way. We get involved in a lot of people's business and I hope it's well intended. I mean, I know sometimes again, it comes back to commerce and politics and whatever, and that's above my pay grade. But I think 99% of Americans in those capacities just want to make a difference. Nels, if people want to connect with you, find out more about the 2420 podcast and want to get involved in the Tunnels to Towers, where can they do so? Well, 2420 podcast kind of was more for last year for the 20th anniversary. I mean, it's still out there in the archives, so they can look at 2420podcast.com, uh, Iron Light Labs, the parent, and they were, they were gracious enough to dedicate their time and resources to get it out there. You know, it was a strictly volunteer project. Um, and we were blessed to come across a bunch of really, really beautiful people that told their stories about, about what they experienced there. And some of it's heartbreaking, some of it's uplifting. Um, and Tunnels to Towers, uh, greatest group of people in the world who, who just do so much for so many. And uh, you can look, look them up at uh, tunnel2towers.org, uh, I believe it is, it's, or T2T.org, it's capital T, 
T-O, capital T, dot org. And um, yeah, I mean, if you could be kind enough to maybe send a donation around the holidays or a permanent, you know, monthly donation there, there's such good people who do so much good. So I'm just so blessed to be able to, you know, get the message out there. And uh, I really appreciate your time and taking the interest to, to, you know, get these stories out there. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been an honor and thank you very much. Nels, thank you for sharing your story. It's an honor and privilege is all mine. Thank you, my friend. God bless. 